0: Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville 1065 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started alcohol anyone who's ever gotten drunk on alcohol knows that it has very dramatic effects on how the brain functions there's been a lot of research in the past showing how alcohol affects the gene expression in the neurons of the brain now humans have about twenty thousand different genes in every cell of our body But not every one of those 20,000 genes is actually being expressed or transcribed. Think of it as being active in every cell of the body. In any one cell of the body, maybe only 20, 30% of those genes are actually being active. Maybe this is not a perfect analogy, but if you think of all the forms of transportation that are available to you, you can walk, you could ride your bike you can drive your car, you could take the bus, you can call a cab, that would be like all the genes inside any one of your cells. But at any one moment when you're trying to move from one location to another, you have to pick one. And that's sort of the way gene expression is. Even though there's all these genes inside of the garage, the cell, the cell's not going to use all those options. They're going to have to select the ones that are important. But to expand that analogy a little bit though, since we do have 20,000 different genes in every one of our cells, there's a suite of genes that are going to be selected rather than just taking a car or taking your bus. There's going to be thousands of genes that are actually going to be expressed in that one particular cell. And the genes expressed in neurons are going to be different than the genes expressed in heart cells, muscle cells, etc and alcohol affects that activity in the neurons of the brain. It makes the expression of genes in the brain change. And what I mean by a specific gene being active is the question of whether that gene produces a specific protein. Most of these 20,000 different genes we have code for proteins. Proteins are really important. They're biochemical molecules that can carry out chemical reactions. They're catalysts. They increase the rate of activity for a specific chemical reaction. But proteins can also receive information from outside of the cell and be involved in determining the shape of a cell and whether the cell moves or not. There's tons of different things that these proteins can do. All of them are really critical and a good number of these 20,000 genes are involved in the way the brain functions. After all, you have to admit, the brain's doing some pretty complicated things. And to quote that Woody Allen movie, it's one of my favorite organs. So since the brain is so important to the way our body functions, and since it's such a complicated process, it's important to know the role of these genes in regulating this process of brain activity. And so today I want to report on a paper that was published in June of 2018 in a journal called the Journal of Experimental Neuroscience. And it doesn't just focus on alcohol and the effect on the brain. Its primary focus is on alcohol addiction and what it does to the brain. Of course, alcohol addiction is quite different than alcohol response. Why is it that some people just can't seem to control their intake of alcohol? They just can't say no. They just can't stop drinking. Now, this particular article is a review article. The authors aren't actually presenting new data, but rather they're summarizing what is known about the topic at that point. Alcohol is a neurodepressant, and what it does is it triggers a series of biochemical changes in our brain cells that compensate for that depressing effect that it has on the neurological system. The consumption of alcohol increases our tolerance to alcohol. So I guess the more alcohol you drink, the more alcohol you can drink. But this process can also make us physiologically dependent on alcohol. So alcohol increases our tolerance of it, but it also increases our dependence on it. So what does alcohol consumption do to our brains? in terms of expression of genes resulting in these various proteins like enzymes that carry out these important biochemical reactions. well, Experiments with mice show that some genes get more activated after they've been given alcohol, but other genes get less activated or less active after they've been exposed to alcohol. One paper that came out about 10 years ago indicated that there were about 3800 different genes in rodents working with mice and rats 3800 different genes that were altered in their expression after exposure to alcohol now mice and rats have few more genes than humans do not a whole lot more but 3800 genes that's a lot 3800 genes in our genome would be about 19% of all of our genes and don't be too distracted by the fact that this data is coming from mice and rats it's illegal and immoral to extract brain cells from living people and and mice and rats are mammals and so they're pretty good model systems for studying the physiology of us so we can extrapolate from this research and conclude that about maybe twenty percent of our genes are also influenced by alcohol some of these genes are being activated in the presence of alcohol and some of them are turned off or get inhibited under the influence of alcohol. So the question is what physiological processes in our brains are these genes involved in? What are these genes or these proteins encoded by these genes? What are they doing? What are they doing? And what do they have to do with alcohol addiction? That's essentially the purpose of this article. Now one of the ways that the genes in our body are regulated in terms of whether they're resulting in expression of proteins or not, one of the ways is a process called epigenetics and this article is really focusing on epigenetics. That prefix to epigenetics epi means outside of like the skin on our body is called the epidermis and so epigenetics refers to how the function of a gene changes without actually changing the DNA sequence that makes up the gene itself. One of the analogies that are used to describe epigenetics is to think of DNA like sheet music for playing the piano. DNA is just code for making proteins and sheet music is just code for making beautiful music on the piano or whatever instrument you're talking about. Well, that sheet music is open to interpretation by the artist, so different pianists will interpret that sheet music differently. And that's sort of how epigenetics is. Now I don't read sheet music at all, so if I was sitting at a piano with sheet music, I wouldn't be able to produce any music. A young student who's still learning the piano might be able to produce a pretty good sound by reading the sheet music, but an experienced pianist would do an even better job of reproducing the music from that score And then the ultimate pianists, the ones we pay lots of money to see in a concert, they would even be able to bring their emotions into that piece and really bring that music alive. So if sheet music is analogous to DNA and making music is analogous to production of proteins based on that DNA code, epigenetics would be an alteration in the rate of production of that protein you might not get any protein made. You might get a little bit of protein made, or a little bit more even, or very high levels of protein being made. That's what epigenetics is. It's not changing the DNA code, but it's how that code is, I guess you could say in quotes, interpreted by the cell. Now that's not to say that epigenetics is the only way the gene expression is regulated. Um, gene expression is primarily regulated with the interaction of DNA sequence with transcription factors, and that's a whole nother story. But scientists are becoming aware that epigenetics is a very powerful way of regulating what goes on in, in our cells. And one example of that is with consumption of alcohol and its linked to alcohol addiction. There is a lot of epigenetics going on. One big example of how our DNA can be regulated epigenetically is at the chromosomal level. Now, our chromosomes are in the nuclei of our cells, and that DNA that's in the nuclei of the the cell can be very tightly wrapped around very large proteins called histones. Now, the DNA in the nuclei of our cell are quite long. They're many, many inches long. They're strands of DNA. So when our chromosomal DNA is tightly wrapped around these histone proteins, they tend to not get transcribed, which means you're not going to get protein production. Now the cells have ways of altering how tightly the DNA is wrapped around these histone proteins. What they can do is chemically alter the histone proteins themselves to make them wrap around DNA either more tightly, which means you're not going to get a protein made out of that DNA, or the histones will wrap around more loosely, not so tightly, which means you can start getting some transcription, some expression of that gene. Now there are enzymes in this cell that can add chemicals to the histones or subtract chemicals from the histones to make them bind to the DNA differently. Enzymes, of course, are these biochemical catalysts. They are proteins that do all these important jobs and these enzymes that add something to the histones are called by the authors of this paper they're called writers w-r-i-t-e-r-s and enzymes in the cell that subtract something from the histones they remove a chemical they're called erasers like the end of a pencil There's a third character that our authors introduce, and that's the reader. So you've got the writers and you've got the readers. The readers are the proteins that directly bind to the DNA and regulate the process of transcription, which is the process involved in making proteins. So you've got writers who are adding something to the histones. You've got erasers that are subtracting things from the histones and then you've got readers that are sort of interpreting this relationship between the DNA and the histones. How tightly bound are the DNA and the histones to each other? Whew, it's complicated! So if there are 3800 different genes that are altered in their expression when we consume alcohol, part of that regulation is due to writers, erasers, and readers. What's really interesting about the activities of the writers the erasers and the readers is that they could be reversed. They could be altered. They could be taken away. And so it raises the possibility that perhaps some sort of biochemical therapy could be designed or adopted as a way of altering our writers, erasers, and readers. That's pretty cool. But before we're going to start manipulating these molecules, researchers need to know a whole lot more about them. Now, I might as well tell you that there are other types of epigenetic modifications in our cells, not just histone. Methyl groups, these are carbon molecules, can be added to our DNA. This has the effect of shutting down transcription. And more recently, researchers have learned a lot more about the role of non-coding DNA on epigenetics. But those are all different topics. This article is more about what happens when DNA is so tightly wound around histones. I mentioned before that they really can't do this kind of research on human brains because that would cause permanent brain damage or even kill the subject. So the model species they're using is Drosophila, the fruit fly. If you remember studying your basic genetics in high school or college, a lot of important things about animal genetics have been learned from studying fruit flies. Some of the reasons why fruit flies are such a good model system for studying genetics is that The animals are small, they are easy to grow, they go through a life cycle very quickly like a month and they reproduce at very high rates so they do produce a lot of offspring which is great if you want to study genetics. Not only is Drosophila melanogaster a very good system to study genetics in animals but apparently fruit flies love alcohol so they're a good species to work with if you want to study alcohol addiction. Eh, Just pour a glass of wine on your porch some day, and see the fruit flies starting to swarm around you. In fact, that's why they had that name, fruit fly. The sugars in fruit get fermented by yeast into alcohol, and that's what really attracts the fruit flies, and that's what they consume. It reminds me of a joke a professor told me one time that college students are a lot like fruit flies. All they want to do is get drunk and fool around a lot. That joke is referring to Drosophila's ability to produce very high amounts of offspring, which, like I said, is a very good thing in genetics. There's another possible explanation for Drosophila's affinity for alcohol. It appears that when fruit flies consume alcohol, it protects them from parasitic wasps, W-A-S-P-S. The wasps won't lay eggs on the fly if the fly has consumed alcohol. That's good because if the wasp does lay eggs on the fruit fly and those eggs hatch, the maggots eat the inside of the fruit fly. And not only do fruit flies like alcohol, but they also exhibit tolerance to alcohol. So a one-time exposure to alcohol makes fruit flies tolerant within just a few hours, and that tolerance can last for a week. It also appears that fruit flies can become dependent on alcohol, so they exhibit symptoms of alcohol withdrawal, just like in humans. Now, you might be wondering, how do they know that fruit flies become addicted to alcohol and then show signs of withdrawal if they're denied alcohol? Well, they show that by observing how fruit flies perform simple tasks once they've been deprived of alcohol. So what they do is they observe how fruit flies respond to certain situations like whether they're attracted or repelled by different odors or how they avoid high temperatures. And then they get the fruit flies addicted to alcohol and then suddenly deprive them of alcohol and see how their response changes. So the same way that a person who's going through alcohol withdrawal or drug withdrawal wouldn't be able to perform their normal day-to-day tasks The fruit fly cannot perform its normal tasks. So the researchers working on this project already knew that fruit flies have the same alcohol response genes that people have. So they figured it would be a good system to work with to identify what are some of these epigenetic mechanisms for regulation of alcohol response and alcohol addiction and alcohol withdrawal. Another neat thing about fruit flies is that it's pretty easy to manipulate their DNA so what researchers can do is mutate or knock out different genes so that they can see the effect of that gene on the overall physiology of the animal so that's also a feature of this research and that ability for the researcher to knock out specific genes can tell them a lot about the function of those genes well what are some of these genes that the researchers think is linked to alcohol addiction in Drosophila the first gene they talked about is called the Silence Information Regulator 2, SIR2, SIR2. Now, this enzyme is found in most organisms. People definitely have the SIR2 gene. And what it normally does is it regulates DNA repair and recombination, which is a very important process that happens during meiosis. That's the reason, even though you might have the same mother and a father, your siblings, your brothers and sisters, look slightly different than you do. Recombination has some role in that, and this enzyme, this SIR2 enzyme, has a role in regulating recombination. In the presence of alcohol, however, this SIR2 enzyme acts as a repressor. It's turning down, it's turning off the expression of certain genes in the presence of alcohol. What they found was that if they could eliminate this SIR2 enzyme, that's the silence information regulator 2, if they could turn it down, the fruit flies ended up being less sensitive to the sedating effects of alcohol. And at the same time, they were less tolerant of alcohol. Now, adult fruit flies like alcohol, but apparently newborn fruit flies don't just like a newborn baby would not like alcohol very much. It's sort of an acquired taste. But they found out that if they mutated the SIR2 gene when they were young flies, and if the flies were given a choice between regular food and food that had some alcohol in it, they preferred the alcohol-tainted food. So this gene seemed to affect the fruit flies' desire to drink alcohol, to consume alcohol. They also observed that SIR2 has some role in odor preferences in fruit fly, not just for alcohol. So this first gene, the SIR2 gene, appears to affect the transcription of the different genes that are influenced by alcohol. And it's hundreds of different genes. It generally represses them. It silences them so that they don't get expressed. The second epigenetic enzyme that was discovered by these researchers is a CREB binding protein, CREB, and I won't go into what CREB stands for other than that it's a transcription factor. It's, a, it's one of those readers I talked about before. It's a protein that binds to DNA and it can influence the transcription rate. Well this is a CREB binding protein so it, it's a protein that interacts with the transcription factor. It binds to the transcription factor which subsequently is affecting transcription of other genes. In the absence of alcohol, this Krebs binding protein is involved in things like cell signaling, the way cells in our body can communicate with one another, cell proliferation, which is how cells grow, tissues grow, and then cell differentiation, which is the development of one cell into another type of cell or tissue. So those kind of things are normally regulated by the Krebs binding protein, but you add alcohol to the story and things are going to get messed up. The third epigenetic system they found that appears to be involved in alcohol use disorder is called JMGC. JMGC. Normally this protein is involved in regulating male fertility and also our circadian rhythms. But in experiments where they've knocked out this JMGC gene, they find that they eliminate the profound effects on alcohol response, addiction, and withdrawal symptoms. So in other words, if they remove the JMGC activity, they find that the response of Drosophila to alcohol changes, the way the fruit fly gets addicted to alcohol changes, and their withdrawal symptoms are affected too. So this JMJC gene has something to do with all these different elements of alcohol use. So they found these three major epigenetic systems that are involved in how we respond to alcohol, how we get addicted to alcohol, what happens to us when we try to withdraw from alcohol, And it finishes by reminding us that the brain is one of the most complex tissues we have and that its ability to adapt to environmental changes, which includes exposure to alcohol, it's remarkable. The things that are going on in our brain are just incredibly complex and fine-tuned. This epigenetic system is probably part of our system of biochemically remembering what's happened to us. So, for instance, a single exposure to alcohol makes us increase our alcohol resistance in a way that lasts for several days, and that might be due to epigenetics. These three epigenetic systems are different, and they appear to act independent of one another, but on the other hand, they do have some signs of interacting with each other. So if you applied this to humans, you might think that might be why alcoholism is so different in different people. Different people have different way of expressing and dealing with and showing the symptoms of alcoholism. Oh boy, I need to look at a thesaurus for another word for different. But the bottom line is that alcoholism is very individualized. Alcoholism in one person is not going to be the same as that in another person. The other implication of there being three different, oh, there it is again, three alternative epigenetic systems is that it's going to be really easy to throw at least one of them off. Someone consuming alcohol might not throw all three systems off kilter, but you might affect one of them, and that could influence the entire delicate balance of what's going on inside of our brains. This original paper that was published in the Journal of Experimental Neuroscience in June of 2018 is not the first paper on these three epigenetic systems, but the first paper only came out in 2016. So we have a long way to go to learn about how all this is working. The authors conclude that there is a really high level of evolutionary conservation between the histones of different organisms, and that includes Drosophila and humans, but really histones across various species are really very similar to one another. So that means that once we learn what's going on in fruit flies, we indeed will know a lot more about what's going gone inside of us. Thank you, and sorry for the long story, but it is an important topic. Here's a pretty interesting press release for a scientific article. It says, A shipwreck and an 800-year-old made-in-China label reveal lost history. Well, the story is that back in the 1980s, some Indonesian fishermen discovered this very old wooden shipwreck in the ocean outside of Indonesia. And this shipwreck contained ceramics and animal tusks and resins. And since that time, researchers have been trying to determine at what date that ship sank. Since some of these materials were derived from living organisms, like the animal tusks and the resins, the researchers have been using radioactive carbon dating procedures to try to determine when those organisms were alive, and from that they could conclude maybe what time the ship sank. So from those studies using radioisotopes of carbon, they predicted that the ship sank around 700 years ago. But recently, some archaeologists at the Field Museum in Chicago have been taking a different approach. They've been looking at the ceramics that were on this ancient shipwreck. And they found an inscription on some of the ceramic that dated to about 800 years ago, which you're talking about maybe as early as 1162 AD, which is 50 to 100 years before what they had previously had predicted. The archaeologists were able to make this conclusion because of the Mongolian invasion of China that had occurred during this period. And when the Mongolians invaded China, they changed the name of a lot of the precincts. And the precinct where this ceramic had been made was one of those. It's a precinct in the interior of China, a little northwest of where Taiwan is. And so the name of this particular spot had changed after the Mongolian invasion, and so the archaeologists were therefore able to predict when that ceramic was made. So that's why the press release had that little pun about the Made in China label on the ceramics, because that Made in China label allowed the archaeologists to more accurately predict the age of it. Of course, in my mind, just because you know the age of something that's on the shipwreck doesn't necessarily mean that you know the date that the ship went down, but I thought this was a very clever approach, and they certainly know more about the maritime history of Asia now because of it. Thank you. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP-LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you!